If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to 2 Timothy. There we will resume our study this morning. Uh, we begin to look at chapter 2 this morning. As you know, we've been making our way through the pastoral epistles, having looked at 1 Timothy, and now we're looking at 2 Timothy. Of course, we will not be going on to Titus. We'll maybe do that one another time. Um, Lord willing, once we get through this book, we will bounce back to the Old Testament and be looking there. But this morning we're looking at chapter 2, Paul continuing then to uh, relay his counsel. And as we know, and and again we'll reiterate that this is Paul's final letter. As I've said to you in the beginning of our study on this particular letter, that Paul's first letter to the churches, the first letter that the Spirit inspired him to write was the book of Galatians. And the last letter that Paul wrote that we have, at least that we know of, is this Second Timothy. That's certainly the last letter that Paul wrote that we have in Scripture. He wrote to Timothy. It's his final counsel. No doubt, at this point, he understands that his life is, is spent. He's about to be executed primarily for his testimony of the gospel. And so he's giving some final words to Timothy. At, at first, First Timothy, if you remember, it was counsel to this young pastor as he was giving him counsel to, 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 work, to do the work of the ministry until Paul could get to Ephesus and, and join Timothy or until they could be reunited. At this point, Paul understands quite clearly his life has been poured out like a drink offering. He is going to the place of execution. And it's this kind of moment as a spiritual father to a spiritual son where I can, I mean, there's an emotion to it for me that when I think about it, it kind of gets me in the heart. Because most any father who's, who's ever said goodbye to a child, and I just mean sent them out into the world, whether it's to college or, or they're moving on, I, I would imagine you can relate that you have this moment of thinking, ah, there was so much more I wanted to tell you. There's so much more I wanted to maybe help you learn before this moment came. And I'm sure Paul being a human being, of course, he wasn't a robot, that there's this moment in Second Timothy, he's kind of having this urge that there was a lot, a lot more I would have told you, but now the Lord has brought me to this juncture, so here is what I'm telling you now. And so he continues on with this counsel, and urgent, he's urged Timothy, he's greeted him, he's, he's urged him to, to guard the good deposit, he's spent many verses talking about that, and now he's kind of to this place where he's reminding Timothy of the fight at hand. Uh, There's a battle. Timothy's engaged in a battle. He's going to be leading other people in battle. Of course, it's a spiritual battle because Paul has already said to the Ephesian church that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. And so he's reminding Timothy, you're engaged in a battle. And so today, that's where we kind of pick up. Uh, Paul's counsel to Timothy, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 2, our paragraph for study this morning is going to be chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So, beloved of God, let's read it now. This is God's infallible and errant word. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, in the reading of God's Word, may add His blessing. Let's 
take a moment for prayer. Father, we lift this time up to you. This is your word. We are your people. This is your time. We are here to be confronted with the reality of a great Savior, and I pray that we do that. I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts to receive from you now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When you think about the Old Testament, if we were to break it down, you can break it down into three categories, literally, even, even the Pentateuch. The, the Pentateuch falls in one of these three categories. The Old Testament breakdown is simple. You have the pre-exilic, the pre-before the exile, you have the exile, and then you have after the exile. That really is the three primary chronological categories of the Old Testament. Now, you have a lot of stuff happening before the exile. When you think about the prophets, they're certainly broken down that way. The, the, the academic name is uh, pre-exilic, just exilic being exile, pre-exilic, exilic, and then post-exilic. But you can really break the whole Bible down in those categories. Everything that happens before the exile is pre-exile. Then you have the exile. And then you have life after the exile. And each are meant to tell a certain aspect of the story of God's people. Before the exile tells us why we got there, why we had to go to the exile. The exile itself tells us the demeanor, the heart of the people within the exile. And the after the exile tells us exactly what the hearts and minds of the people were after the exile was over. What's interesting is the after-exile is very similar to the pre-exile, giving us the, the main idea of the Old Testament is that the exile didn't do what it was designed to do. Something else needed to happen. Now, all that was for free because that has very little to do with my sermon this morning. It's just a little bit of Bible history for you. One of the things that one of the books does, Nehemiah, perhaps many of you have read through that book. It's one of the more popular Old Testament books. But Nehemiah, if you've read through it, you understand that Nehemiah chronicles the return to home, the return to Jerusalem, the return to the holy city, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall and her temple. That's one of the primary, that is the primary uh, impetus of Nehemiah's book. Now, if you've read it, you also know something else is true, that when Nehemiah and his people came to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, People weren't there with open arms saying, yeah, come on in, rebuild, we're happy you're here. No, because people had developed a life for themselves in exile where they had money, where they had comfort, where they had power, where they had position and clout and status, and they didn't want somebody coming in upsetting the apple cart. He was bringing in a renewed message and a renewed hope that meant that the way life was being lived was going to have to be transformed, going to have to be changed. It couldn't stay like it had through the exile. This should sound a note of familiarity to us. So he had great opposition. When, when, when we read of the workers building the wall in Nehemiah, we are reminded that they had a trowel in one hand, laying stone, and they had a sword in the other. Because at this point in God's people's history, what they understood was, I may be a laborer in the field of the Lord, but I'm also an act of combat. I'm not just a civilian, per se. I'm also a soldier. They didn't get the luxury of just getting to focus on hewing rocks or making oil or making incense or doing nice embroidery. Everything had to be done with this notion that I'm also at war. I'm also in combat. I also have to carry a sword. So a sword in one hand, the Scriptures tell us a trowel in the other. So as they're reintegrating back to life, 
they're having to live with a sword. What is it telling us? They had to live in combat. Like, it wasn't just an easy transition. <laughs> it was a transition, but it was a transition that was costly, a transition that meant war. And so when we think about Nehemiah, we think about the Old Testament, all these books, this is a good summation of our lives. If we think about what Christ has done for us and in us, Christ has renewed us and transformed us in the world in which we live, but it demands that we live with the sword of truth in hand. In other words, we live with this understanding that we don't just simply get to get by. We're called to active battle with spiritual powers. What Paul won't let Timothy, and by extension the church, forget is that life with Jesus means struggle. So it should be lost on us that Paul mentions three things. Being a soldier is costly. And if you don't think it is, I would encourage you to talk to one. Being a soldier or an athlete who competes, genuine athletes who compete at a high level, it's costly. A farmer, he mentions farming. Farming is costly labor. You have to invest yourself into it. So all the pictures that he uses are things that imply struggle, things that imply battle, things that mean I have to be ready to fight. What is the struggle? What is our battle? Well, the battle of our time is not the political group that you don't like, not even the bad legislation and all that goes with it, not even notions of justice or injustice. All those things are real battles that we face. (laughs) That's not the fight. The fight of our time has been the fight of the time of the people of God since Adam and Eve were put out of the garden and starting in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel. That's when the fight of our time, we see it unfold. It is with Satan, it is against the world, and it is against our own flesh. What will we, how do we do battle in that place? Or how do we find hope and peace? Let's ask that question. How do we find hope and peace in the midst of that battle? Well, we find it in the true and gracious message of Christ. We find it in the word of truth, or as the Bible, Paul will call it in Ephesians 6, the sword of truth. Now, if you think about it, what is a sword? We often think of it merely as an offensive weapon, something I attack with. And it is that, but it's not just offensive. You also can protect with a sword. You can parry blows. You can knock them away. You can use it as a, as a mode of defense, as a feint. But in, in, in every situation, we use it both as an offensive weapon to attack falsehood and a defensive weapon to defend ourselves against also what is false. And so when we think about strength in battle, where does it come from? Does it come from us who know how to wield swords or, or shields really well? Well, no. It comes from Christ. Beloved, we have a fight on our hands. Paul is reminding Timothy here, you have a fight on your hands. And we have a fight whether we want it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we think it's fair or not, whether we think we're prepared or not. If you're in Christ this morning, you are prepared because of Christ in you. So the Holy Spirit gives us everything we need for victory. This is not new information, right? The Bible, it's not new information that as believers we struggle And your primary struggle 
if we can be honest enough, our primary struggle even isn't with things outside ourselves. Do you struggle with, the, with spiritual forces? Yes, you do. I'm not trying to minimize that. But the primary struggle that you and I face is the struggle with ourselves, is the struggle with our own flesh, is the struggle to do what is right rather than what is easy, the struggle to do what is right rather than what is comfortable, the struggle to do what is right rather than what is convenient, and the call to go into places that we feel ill-prepared to go into. That is the Christian life. We often forget that we have strength and an arsenal of weapons that do not originate or depend on us. They do not originate in or depend on us. They flow from the Spirit. And it seems counter. When we read, hey, in the face of battle, what is God calling us to do? God says, wait, rest, trust, in the face of hardship and battle. When we think of battle, the last thing we think is, hey, I need to sit back and wait and rest and trust. We use, it's, an active, or it's an active thing. We, we have to engage. Yet we are called to, in the hardship of battle in the Christian life, to wait and trust and rest. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. Wait, trust, rest is not equated to, so do nothing. Because if you do nothing, you go backwards. Wait, trust, and rest means that in God's good and gracious love and providence, that we press into trusting in Him, to leaning on Him, to walking after Him, and waiting for Him to lead us to the best spot. And so you and I, we live in combat, but we march under the banner, power, and authority of Jesus Christ. And that means something. That means something much greater than all the physical strength or all the mental prowess in the world. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. That's what the psalmist would say. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that Christians must lay down their lives in service to Christ. Not a novel idea, that Christians must lay down their lives in service to Christ. If we're going to be good soldiers, it is going to be a sacrifice. It is. There's just no way around it. Paul uses that phrase, good soldier, uh, share in the suffering in verse 3 as a good soldier of, of Christ Jesus, and then he again feeds right into that in verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. When we think about that, what it means to be a good soldier, it means somebody who's faithful, who's dedicated, who's disciplined. A lot of, a lot of words that we understand that we would naturally associate with what it means to be a good soldier. And so when we think about the strength and grace of Christ, that is what empowers us to fight. So that is not something, again, that we muster, that we just build in ourselves. It's something that comes to us by means of the Holy Spirit. Brad, I don't know that the Holy Spirit has given me those things. If you call Christ Lord this morning, He absolutely has. He has. The day you were renewed and, and resurrected in Christ and made a new creature, you have the strength and grace of Christ in you, and I have it in me. And so we need to remember that. So as Paul is laying this out, he's getting into the word you're going to hear me come back to multiple times is a word called commitment, not an, not an unfamiliar word to us. This word that's called commitment, what, it, what does it mean 
to be committed. Well, if you think about the three examples, I'm going to repeat this in just a moment. The three examples that Paul gives here, what does a good soldier, an athlete, and a good farmer have in common? They're committed to their trade. They're committed to their duty. They're committed to what they're called to do. They don't deviate from that. There's this notion of, of commitment. So we're looking at committed service. We think about the Christian life. It is about genuine commitment and service. We sometimes overcomplicate it. We try to make it all these things which really, if we can just get to the bare bones of, if, if we can be faithful in our commitment to Christ, it solves a lot of other issues. It solves a lot of issues. If we say, hey, my commitment to Christ is absolutely primary, and I won't waver there. Now, will we do it perfectly? Well, no, of course not. We won't. But it means that if we are focusing on being as committed to Christ as we can be, it solves a lot of other problems. Paul begins this. You don't see this in the ESV text. Perhaps the, the New American Standard probably may use the word therefore. You see it in ESV, you then, or literally, you therefore, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Why mention therefore? Well, because Paul is transitioning from what he's just said towards the end of chapter 1, where he said, you have grace and mercy from the Lord. You don't have to live with shame. In other words, you have strength. You have the tools that you need. Therefore, in light of that, you can live without shame and be strong. How? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're going to come around to that in just a second. But what he says here is, you therefore, my child, be strengthened or be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That be strong there is an express command. It's not telling you that you have the possibility of being strong, that you have the opportunity to be strong, that should you decide to, you can be strong. It's saying, be strong. I like this wooden translation. You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong. Live in strength because you have it, not from you, but from Christ. Be strong in the grace. I love that he ferrets it out very detailed, or in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so when we think about the strength that we have, that it flows from God. And what does it do? It does exactly what Scripture often says it does. It meets us in our weakness. By t reminding Timothy, remember, from Timothy 1, or 1 Timothy, who was timid, who Paul had to encourage on multiple times, don't let people despise your youth. Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved of God, be strong. You are naturally weak. I am naturally weak. And so this command resonates in our minds and hearts that we are called to be strong so that when we get to the public square where our propensity is to shrink back because we don't feel sufficient for the task, Paul's words should ring in our ears. Be strong. How? In your prowess? No. In your intellect, no. In your ability to speak to this issue, no. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And if you have prowess and intellect and expertise in the issue, use them for the glory of God. But remember that our strength flows not from us. It flows from Christ. So that when we know that when we have, quote-unquote, I'm going to put this word in quotes. We love to use it in the American context success is a very important word to us. We measure everything by how successful it is. So if we want, quote-unquote, success, 
And success means right, rightly standing up in and for Christ. If we want success, it's a fruit of Christ and not you, not me, not us. It's a fruit that has worked because of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Two little prepositional phrases that are so important. In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now remember, I've already said, in Christ Jesus is one of Paul's favorite phrases, especially in the pastorals, because that is the locus of everything. Everything, the strength we have, the lives we live, the ministries that we engage, the marriages that we have, the parental relationships we have, everything is located in Christ Jesus. That has to be the center point. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So heard, what did Timothy hear? Well, he heard the message of the gospel. That is Paul's point. Paul is telling Timothy, yes, what you've heard from me, which is the true message of Christ, the word gospel, shorthand, being the message of Christ, the message that God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul, again, writing that verse to the Corinthian church, reiterating Timothy, what you've heard, the true message of the gospel, you heard in the presence of many witnesses. Why is that important? Because Timothy didn't hear this in a vacuum. It's not as if Timothy is some uh, possessor of this secret information. Why would I even bring that out? Not around this time, perhaps a little bit later, maybe you've heard the word Gnostic. In fact, you've heard the word like the Gnostic Gospels, Gospels that were written called the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of so-and-so that, that claimed to have all these stories about Jesus doing miracles when he was young and really that deviate from Scripture. Paul is telling Timothy the message you heard in the presence of many witnesses, one, to say you're not the only one who heard it, more people heard it and can verify the message. Two, to make sure that anyone reading this letter understands that Timothy is not some special secret possessor of something that only he can convey. Paul is saying the message you've heard, Timothy, in fact, that everybody heard, entrust. Entrust that message. Entrust that message to other people. So when we think about what is Timothy's hope, it's in the same gospel that our hope is in the same message. It's our hope. When he says here to entrust it, again, that is an express command. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, start, let it be the pebble in the, in the pond that begins a ripple effect. You take what you've heard from me, this faithful message, and then you entrust it to people who will be faithful with it. So that then in turn, they will entrust it to people who will be faithful with it. So then in turn, they will entrust it to people who will be faithful with it. And beloved of God, did it work? If you have a bound copy of God's Word in your hand this morning or even one on your phone, then the answer to your question sits right in front of you. When we think about the faithfulness of the Spirit and of God to continue to push this message forward. So express command and trust this to other people who will also teach it. But you know what I love here? You know what a primary focus here is we can't miss? is this notion of discipleship. What had Paul done for Timothy? He had personally discipled Timothy. And by disciple Timothy, what do I mean? Now they sat in Paul's office and drank coffee and, and, and talked about the Bible? 
And there's nothing wrong with that. I do that. But no, that's not what I mean, actually. What I mean is, is what Paul did is invited Timothy into his life. Timothy, I'm inviting you into my life. I want you to walk with me. I want you to talk with me. I want you to pray with me. I want you to bear your burdens with me and let me bear mine with you. I want to help you think about life through this lens, this worldview lens of of the gospel, so that as we see ourselves, we begin to see ourselves not as the world tells us, but as God has said we are. That's the beauty of what discipleship is. Paul used discipleship as a primary means of conveying truth to other people. It begs the question, are we, are we a discipling people? Are we looking for discipleship? Because if you look at texts like this, what it reminds us is discipleship is not a, an add-on in the gospel that we do merely when it's convenient for us. It is a way that we live our lives. This is convicting. It is to me because it asks the question of me, am I looking to be a disciple and am I looking to disciple? Am I looking to be a disciple, and am I looking to disciple? Because we have the Word of God before us, and we have opportunities to shepherd other, one another as we, shepherd, as we are shepherded in the truth. And beloved of God, it is and remains an essential way we grow. You don't have to show me your hands. I just want you to think about this for a moment. If you sit here this morning and you say you would agree with what I'm about to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. He's made a tremendous impact on my life. Life hasn't always been easy, but I keep coming back around to the truth. If that's uh, broadly what you would say of yourself, then ask yourself this. Was there persons or a person in your life who was very meaningful in that journey? And if the answer is yes, the question we have to ask is, how can we be doing that for other people? For me, several men come to mind when I think about that. And this is not Brad trying to guilt you. It's really not. It's about being convinced of this when Paul says, what I've entrusted to you, I want you to go and entrust. This is a call for us as believers, especially in the world we live in where everything is so fractured. This is a beautiful way we come back together in these wonderful discipleship relationships that may look a myriad of different ways in how we engage in them, but are meaningful nonetheless. Maybe it's you asking that person that you've observed at church, hey, can I spend time with you? Maybe it's you as a person who's noticed somebody who says, hey, can I spend time with you? Beloved, however we do it, it's important that we do it. But Paul moves on. He says, who will be able to teach others also. And then he tells Timothy this. Again, this is an express command, not a, not a suggestion. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul doesn't imply that it might happen. He's saying it'll come, and you've got to be willing to share in it. Real Christian commitment is painful. We live at war. We live in a battle. We, we fight. That's what we're called to do. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There's a subtle note of possession here. We're not our own soldiers. We don't fight our own fights. We don't have a battle plan that originates in us as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. That's grammatically telling us that we belong to Christ, that we are His soldiers. We fight in war for Him. And so this battle that we're called to is not merely for our pride or for any other reason other than to bring 
glory to Christ, and to wage war for truth and souls. And so when we think about this battle as good soldiers, it's not arbitrary. It's not winning an argument. It's not engaging in the public sphere for debate just so we can win arguments. I want, I want, I want people to come to the truth, but that's not what this is talking about. This battle is a battle that has eternal implications. This is about bringing truth to bear to souls who need the hope of the gospel. And so when we think about service in God's kingdom, there is no idle place. The catechism that Richard led us in earlier says that we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, and that is absolutely right. Body and soul, we're His And so when we think about the implication, what does it mean? It's theologically true that we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. What does that mean at street level? Well, what it means is, is that our labors, our loves, the entirety of our lives are governed by Christ. So it's not if we'll serve, it's not if we feel like serving, it's how and where we'll do it. How, where? Because if in Christ we live, move, and have our being, which is what the Scriptures themselves say, then the question of service does not become an if. It becomes a when. It becomes a where. It becomes a how. So as Paul lays all this out, so he's given us the preamble to this. And so he's given us the, let's, let's call it the philosophical aspect of this. So verses 1 to 3 kind of lay out, the philosophical aspect of what, it, what does it mean to live life in combat? What does it mean to be a good soldier? Verses 4, 5, and 6 give us the practical side of that, these practical everyday pictures. Starting in verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the first example we get is a soldier. We've already been introduced to this uh, theme in uh, verse 3. Paul says, point blank, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Now, literally what that says is in the affairs of life. Some have taken this to say those who engage in ministry can't be bothered with secular. I'm overstating my case just to make a point. What I'm trying to say is is they make this really hard and fast divide between what is called secular, uh, secular and sacred. This is the secular work, and this is the sacred work. You know what you'll never find in the Bible is that hard and fast distinction, ever. Because the Bible calls us to live as Christians in the world as God created it. And if you're a doctor, be a good doctor. Be a solid Christian doctor. If you're a lawyer, be a solid Christian lawyer. If you are a plumber, you be a a plumber to the glory of God. If you are whatever you are, a teacher, (laughs) a counselor, a, any civil servant that you can think of. I'm just making sure I'm trying not to leave anybody out, but that's impossible. Just if I didn't mention your profession, it's special to God, I pr- promise you. Uh, any of those things, that, that is a calling from the Lord, a calling to be faithful in your sphere of life, and a calling to be a conduit of truth. And so that there's nothing more special about the job of pastor than there is a plumber. The training is different. The lifestyle may be a little different. The things in which we engage perhaps are different. But at the end of the day, what are we called to do to be the best pastor or plumber we can be to the glory of God and to be conduits of truth in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in? 
And so when Paul is talking about not getting entangled in the affairs of life and, or civilian pursuits, he's talking about a, a soldier is supposed to have laser-focused. They're not supposed to be lured away into false things. As believers in Christ, we're supposed to be singular in devotion. We're supposed to live our lives with Christ as the center, to please Christ. And so that the, the dominating question of our lives as a good soldier of Christ Jesus becomes not can I, is it okay, but how can I glorify God in this? And when we think about it in those terms, it makes a difference in how we live. The second example he uses here is one of an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's interesting. Athlete, an athlete has to exert themselves. So often when we think of athletes, it's so easy to think of professional sports where uh, people have, they can sometimes have an attitude of entitlement, of arrogance, of beating their chest, of all eyes on me. When we think about the type of athlete that Paul had in mind, he meant the Olympiad, the one who trained and trained and trained and trained and trained and trained for the crown, for the wreath, for the crown wreath of being a champion in his or her sport. But what he's, what he's talking about here is interesting. He talks about athletes competing within a prescribed set of rules. In other words, they can't just do whatever they want. You know, if, if you throw the shot put, that means you, you don't throw the javelin. Or if you're doing the discus, you don't do the shot put. Or if you are a track star, you don't get to use the rules of swimming. Now, each sport within itself has its own rules, rules that govern how and what you do. Very commiserate and consistent with the Christian life. We are called to live as Christians, and so that means certain standards will be followed. But what Paul says here, I want you to understand what what Paul says here. This is interesting. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know what what he says? No faithfulness, no crown. No faithfulness, no crown. Now, let me tell you exactly what Paul is not saying, that that crown of life, that that crown of righteousness depends on you and only you and what you do. If you don't do it right, there is no crown. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that when we have the crown of life, and the crown of righteousness, our default should be faithfulness. This is a sobering passage in that it says that what you do matters. How we live matters. The world in which we inhabit, how we carry ourselves in that world matters. But those labors become a visible fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. What is one of the clearest signs that the Holy Spirit is working in you and me? How we live in labor. How we live in labor. One of the clearest signs is how we live in labor. Are we self-controlled? Are we gentle? Are we humble? Are we loving? Are we peace-filled? Are we joyful? Are we faithful? And do our works exhibit these things? That's how people see the Holy Spirit in us. It's so easy to get off task and think that it comes in forms of or displays of, of supernatural power, and it doesn't. It comes in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those things show us are as indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, Paul speaks of the farmer. This is a bit less clear than the others. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. 
So what does a farmer do? He labors. He labors and labors and labors. But he enjoys the fruit of his labor. So as a farmer labors and he sees his crop come and yield fruit, he should be the first to rejoice. And so Paul has this idea that as we labor in the fields that are white for harvest, that we labor faithfully, and that we truly take joy in what God is doing, that we enjoy the fruit of that labor, that we enjoy cultivating hearts. It is long, tough work, but we should take joy in seeing those hearts be transformed. He ends this paragraph by stating this, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This word think here is an express command. Think and keep thinking over what I say. What I say. And where does Paul say that understanding, it comes from God, period. James would say, if you need wisdom, you ask for it. We need understanding, it comes from the Lord. That is Paul's point to Timothy. And when we think about this, it is very, if, if God, if the, if the Lord God's us in all understanding, it is not too dissimilar from John telling us that the Holy Spirit guides us in all truth. We all, we all need that. We all need understanding. We all need God's truth. And Paul says here that it's graciously given. So what is the sum of this then? We think about this paragraph and its context. What is indeed the sum of it? that it is in Christ that we have the capacity to persevere. That is not a, an unobvious statement and should be a statement that resonates with us. And we say, well, yeah, of course that's true, that it is in Christ that we have the capacity to persevere. And so what does that mean? Before I get into any other, you know, concluding thoughts, if it is in Christ that we have the capacity to persevere, then here's a challenge I want to give to you this morning. I've been chewing on it all week. If it is in Christ that we have the capacity to persevere, why is it that we go to so many other places to strengthen us for the battle except there? Or maybe we go to other places and also there. Well, if I do this, that'll help. If I do this, that'll help. And if I do this, that'll help. Sometimes the things that we're doing are not the most hurtful things in the world, but the primary help that we have for perseverance is not in those things. It is in Christ, period. Now, what I'm not saying is this. Well, you just buck up and get some joy and go read the good book, and that'll solve all your problems. Often, and I say this with all due humility and reverence, it's the good books that creates more problems because the more we read, the more we see needs transforming. The more we read, the more we see just how short we fall and how much we need Christ, which is why perseverance will never come by means of anything else. Those things we reach for, those thoughts that we try to pursue, these activities that we give ourselves to will never give what Christ gives. They can't. And so this morning, that's the challenge. It is in Christ that we persevere. The service to which we are called as Christians is costly. It's costly. Seeking ways to serve at no cost to ourselves will ultimately subvert the very service we're seeking to render. Because ask yourself, when you're seeking to serve at no cost, what happens if you get sidetracked, you get derailed, doesn't quite work out how you want it to? 
The focus becomes less on the service and more on what you lost, what you didn't get, what went wrong, what didn't happen that should have or what should have happened that didn't. And so this is where we have this calling to seek to serve costly service, not looking for trouble, not being gluttons for punishment, not asking to be hurt, but laying ourselves out there knowing that it's probable. Because here's the reality. The gospel requires strength. It requires boldness. It requires insight. All these things it requires, and all these things are the very things which God graciously gives us. The gifts of God are, are free. They are free. But to serve Christ faithfully, what does it cost? Everything. The free gift of God is the most costly free gift we have because the free gift of God means that I must lay down my life. And if you're like me, that's a hard task because when we lay down our lives, we have to lay down a lot of stuff that we like to hold. But to serve Christ faithfully, it means giving up. And so the message is not, this is not the message, the message is not to be loved by Christ, you must lay down your life. Rather, this is the message. This is the message. Because we are infinitely loved by Christ, we can, we may, we get to lay down our lives. And we get to be a conduit of His love through us for other people. And when we embrace that, we've embraced what it means to love like Christ, to imitate the love of Christ and how we give our lives away for the good of God or for the good of man and the glory of God. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this paragraph this morning. It's rich, it's full, it's, it's really bursting with truth. And it's so often these are things that are easy for us to try to sidestep or maybe water down or even lessen the, the severity of the call. Father, we praise you when your mercy meets us and we get relief. Help us to praise you when your mercy meets us, and it does not equate to relief, but it equates to strength to go one more mile. Help us to persevere, we pray. Oh, Father, forgive us for the things that we look to in our desire to cope with life's struggles. Renew us in our strength and our desire to lean into and to press into you when we'd rather go an easier way or what appears to be easier. Oh, Father, help us to choose life every day and not give in to the temptations of death. Help us to choose what is right and good and not to choose what is sinful and abhorrent to you. We thank you that in Christ Jesus we can follow you, and I pray that you would help us all the days of our lives. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.